Kebu Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Crossing Boundaries, virtual fishing derby and auction, from Saturday, September 26th through Sunday, October 4th, streaming online. This fundraiser for the conservation of Pacific Northwest salmon and steelhead features a virtual fishing derby, auction, trivia night, and more. Again, that's Crossing Boundaries virtual fishing derby and auction from Saturday, September 26th through Sunday, October 4th, streaming online. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. I'm a going fishing, mama's going fishing, and the baby going fishing too. Good morning, everybody. This is DK Home, and it's time for another episode of Film at 11, Cabo Portland's weekly movie review program. But first, let's hear this. This is Britta Gordon, a contributor to the film show and podcast Film at 11. One of the most important things about Cabo is that it is indeed community produced of, by, and for our community, with the wider listening public kept in mind as well, of course. KBOO is a place where a diverse set of producers volunteer their time to create an outstanding range of material. So whether you've just found out about KBOO or have been a stalwart member for many years, your support is critical. You can donate today at kboo.fm give. We aren't in the station to take your calls, but you can show your support by giving online. Or you can also mail a contribution to the station at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. And now, back to Film at 11. Well, next we're going to hear from our Essentials of Cinema correspondent, Jeff Godsall, on the movie that he likes this week. In the world of classical music, the works of composer Philip Glass have always stirred debate. From his beginnings in the late 70s, Glass's explorations into minimalism and the constantly repetitive and shifting waves in his music have forced a response from the listener. Either you loved it or you hated it. Glass's music seems to elicit a physiological, even neurological response in people. You're either caught up in the rapture or you run screaming from the room. Critics were divided too. I remember one classical radio station host in LA saying, if I ever write a good review of Philip Glass in the newspaper, you'll never see it. You'll be too engrossed with the news on the front page that hell had frozen over. In 1982, Glass released Glassworks on CBS Records. It was a kind of manifesto, a clarion call, and it definitely introduced him to a wider audience. It was a chamber piece divided into six sections, alternating between the quieter, elegaic, almost ambient aspects of his music with the driving kinetic staccato attack that his work would become so known for. It was hard to classify the music of Philip Glass. Being in the retail music business myself at the time, I recall being unsure whether to put his records, as well as some of his contemporaries, like Steve Reich, into the classical section at all. For a while, some stores created New Age sections, where everyone from Glass to Brian Eno to Yanni could be found. 1982 would also prove to be a big year for Philip Glass as it paired him with filmmaker Godfrey Reggio. 
Reggio, along with his cinematographer, Ron Frick, had been shooting and compiling unscripted footage for years with the original intention of making an hour-long film. There was footage of the Pruitt-Igo housing project in St. Louis, Missouri, being blown up whole blocks at a time. People in Times Square passing by and just looking at the camera as if it was for a still photo. Footage of the blackout in New York in 1977. Frick and his crew went out to Four Corners, where the four states of Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico all meet, where the desert landscapes take on the look of an alien planet. Time-lapse video was used to enhance the visual language of the footage. Somewhere along the line, a theme was emerging that would unite all of this seemingly random footage. It was found in the Native American Hopi concept of Koyaniskatsi, or life out of balance, a world trying to come to grips with the demands of life itself, a world where nature and technology seem to be at constant odds, and a planet that contained images of staggering beauty as well as those of abject poverty and despair. All that was left to make this concept complete was a musical score. And with the same kind of bold thinking that had brought the project this far, Philip Glass was brought in. Just as Glass would do with his alternating moods in the six sections of Glassworks, the score for Kiana Scotzi complements and reinforces the images, juxtaposing the visual passages of natural beauty with those of hectic city life. There's nothing particularly new about the footage that's used in Koyaniskatsi, and it doesn't benefit from all of the technological advancements in filmmaking since 1982, but there is something about the power of these images and that music that still captivates today. Francis Ford Coppola saw an early screening of the film and lent his name to it in the hopes that this most uncommercial of films could find some kind of distribution. PBS picked up on it and broadcast it in prime time on a Saturday night. Koyana Scotsi became an in thing, a cult film. Maybe it still is today. It spawned two sequels, Poa Katsi in 1988 and Nagoi Katsi in 2002, both featuring music by Philip Glass. And while both are striking in their own ways, they don't quite capture the hypnotic allure of the great original. All three films are available in a box set from Criterion called The Katsi Trilogy. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jeff. And now let's hear from Matthew of Kebu's Gremlin Time. Well, thanks, DK. Well, I've got another little down and dirty, nicely made little action film. And this is from almost exactly a year ago. This is The Courier, and it's directed by Zachary Adler. And it stars Olga Kurylenko. Uh, she was in the second James Bond, uh, Daniel Craig movie, Quantum of Solace. And it also has a performance by Ahmed Saab.
in this little taunt little action film. We have a uh, powerful gangster guy played by Gary Oldman who's being convicted of murder and the witness is being hidden away in London and he's brought to a secret location and he's going to they're going to have a testimony in court and they have to get it in at this certain time for some reason some plot device reason but uh, something's going on the bad guys arranged to have things uh, scuttled or the witness killed or something we don't know and the 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 package of the thing that's going to make the connection between London and New York is delivered by this mysterious woman known as the Courier. This is the closest we've ever come to putting him away. Without this witness, Manning's walks. When the package arrives, you give your testimony and you get your life back. I'm supposed to deliver the package. Name. I'm just the Courier. Well, that's not good enough. Someone is trying to kill you. The witness managed to get away. I think we have a problem. Now, this film has a great opening title sequence, which you got to kind of pay attention to because it not only sets up what the situation is with the gangster and everything, but it gives a little bit of background on our hero and how she was like a CIA operative. And we see redacted reports with, which say, uh, unarmed combat specialist and, uh, you know, doesn't take to uh, command or as a security risk or some little things like that. And then we see headlines about a mysterious vigilante who's been helping the police bust, you know, like uh, white slavery rings and, uh, and drug smugglers and stuff like that. And so that kind of sets up who this character is whom we see on this motorcycle. So we, the movie we think is going to be kind of like a Luc Brisson's uh, transporter series. Uh, but then, after she ends up rescuing the uh, the witness, they end up trapped in this parking structure, which is very brilliant because it seems like the movie kind of had a small budget. It was shot in 18 days, and it is a good example of just using what you have and making the most of it, using your imagination, as SpongeBob would say. Um, the director, again, is Zachary Adler, and he'd done a, a couple of uh, television movies about the, the Cray brothers, the, the notorious Brit London gangsters of the 1960s. Now, there is some trivial uh, criticisms of this movie. She doesn't seem like she's going to be one that could go up against these big goony guys, but that's one of the advantages of it. And what makes part of the suspense is how she does overcome uh, these mercenaries. And little things like, well, if it, the, the bullets that are mentioned are the wrong type for the type of gun that somebody's using and that sort of nonsense. But um, overall, this is a nicely put together action sequence. I want to point out Amit Saab as the the uh, witness. He becomes uh, totally annoying and that's just a sign of a very good actor. So nice use of uh, Olga Karolinko, uh, a really good action star. I would uh, think her character reminds me a lot of the uh, golden age uh heroine uh, Miss Fury but uh, that's just me and my comic book background so as a movie it's not quite as polished as say Extraction or Haywire but it's certainly not any sort of a waste of time 
And so um, I'm talking about The Courier from 2019. It's playing on Hulu right now. And yes, it it makes the best of what it has and a really good performance by Olga Karylinchenko. Did I say that she was a kick-ass? Well, you Who are you? Just The Courier. You know, nice B-movie drive-in entertainment fair. Olga Kirilenko, again, in The Courier from 2019. Uh, well, uh, that's all for me. This is Fortunato. I'm going to hand it back to young Mr. DK. And now, Britta Gordon is going to share with us one of the shows that she's stumbled upon in the world of streaming. This week, in honor of the many unfortunate things to honor, including the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the fact that injustices and inequities in our society continue unabated, I offer consideration of a fascinating film, one that seems prescient, timely, and of its time, if it can be all those things at once. It is currently streaming free on Canopy, a service offered by the Multnomah County Library. The film is Born in Flames, directed by Lizzie Borden and released in 1983. It had its premiere that year at the Berlin Film Festival. The first time I watched Born in Flames, I felt disoriented. Partly, that's because all of the relevant parties or actors in this film are introduced in fairly quick succession. So you have to wait a bit to be able to follow the various threads that will tangle themselves up by the end. Partly, that's also because it is confusing to be told that the film is set in New York City, which is apparently celebrating the 10th anniversary of the successful Social Democratic War of Liberation, except that nothing seems futuristic and that things in the city look a lot like things looked in 1983, one of the years it was shot. The film took five years to make. Which is, of course, the point. Everything is the same. The graffiti, the poverty, jobless people sitting around, and especially the realities faced by women. In two wonderful documentary tracking shots early on, a series of cashiers and then secretaries get a few cameo seconds each as the camera passes by. They smile delightedly. Don't let that fool you. Their plight will be addressed later on. Borden's approach has been described as a disjunctive collage, and that is a good description of what becomes a powerful technique, a technique that most often layers different media modes communicating often contradictory messages within the same shot. She begins with a newscast celebrating that anniversary, while on the soundtrack is the propulsive beat and warbling sound, horribly insidious, of the song Born in Flames, basically a falsetto scream of rage against tyranny and oppression. There's a shot of Isabel, the DJ at Radio Ragazza, who is eyeing the camera with an evil grin while she announces her next song that you'll be hearing a lot, in fact, almost everywhere. And then, over a shot of one of the film's main protagonists, Adelaide Norris, working at a construction job, you see police typing coming across the screen and a voice of uh, what seems to be an FBI agent discussing Norris's family, her job, her sexuality, and her leadership of the women's army, made up mostly of blacks and lesbians, according to the agent, which gives us everything we need to know about her through the perspective of possibly the most formidable enemy in this film. So it's a complicated structural strategy and one that makes the viewer a bit dizzy as the disparate elements of this film pursue their disparate objectives. The collective that makes up the women's army debate their focus, a group of female editors at a newspaper that seems to be devoted to the cause of the now ruling social democrats try to justify the increasingly authoritarian decisions of that party to themselves. The DJs at Radio Ragazza grow increasingly angry, 
We are gonna redesign the landscape of an alienated culture, is one memorable line. The DJs at another woman-run radio station, Phoenix Radio, declare that their station is not only for the liberation of women, but for the liberation of all. And finally, the agents continue to keep track of Norris. What's terrific about this approach is that it allows for maximum confusion and discordancy, the state in which most upheavals take place. The social democratic regime is shown by its mouthpiece, newspaper editors, television newscasters, and of course, those agents, to be yet the latest iteration of a controlling ideological state. And everyone is trying to make persuasive arguments, whether on a newscast, over beers at a bar, while watching a video game in a group meeting. Those white female social democratic editors offer up justifications. Their scrappy, skeptical counterparts, mostly women of color, rack up some solid debating points in their own venues. And meanwhile, the agents continue to monitor every detail of Adelaide Norris's life. The film gains speed as it goes along, as it gets more dramatic. Norris puts herself in danger, visiting Moroccan rebels who are training in the desert, the agents monitoring her all the way. While at home, the various factions are becoming more restive. Borden features a strike by women secretaries complaining of their lack of career opportunities, some clear statements, pithy stories, and a sense of endless deja vu. There's also some crazy talk as when one woman opines that a, quote, short-term weapon might be found to fight the enemy. Even blinding someone for five years is better than shooting them, she says. When Norris returns, we watch her arrest at the airport in Longshot. Then our last look at this calmly charismatic performer is a photograph of her lying dead in a jail cell. Reports that she hanged herself cause an uproar in the various female communities and things start to happen quickly. New alliances are formed, tenuous compromises seem to be made, the white newspaper women repeatedly confront their male boss who is unwilling to denounce the party's methods when it comes to Norris. Another group of mostly white women decide with the urging of the women's army matriarch to take on the news media directly. I won't give away the very end of the film. Suffice it to say that women hijack CBS News, guns are deployed, and things go up in smoke. I'm not sure whether Borden's point is to show us the fueling of the radicalization engines, or give us the satisfaction of watching women trying to destroy a system that increasingly threatens them. While the ending is a creepily prescient blow-up, along the way there are indications that the various women's groups have found tenacious methods of survival stealing U-Haul trucks, for example, to house on-the-move radio stations, a now-consolidated Radio Ragazza in Phoenix, after the government burns their offices. If the ending feels wanton and, given 9-11, fantastically indifferent to the human lives that the increasingly terroristic women will obliterate, it also feels a bit stagey, as do the scenes involving the airport kidnapping of Norris. Because there are so many players, you feel like you're watching a, a kind of kaleidoscope click into a more rigid pattern. Contrast that with Chantal Ackerman's claustrophobically effective first film, Saute Ma Vie, in which a young woman becomes increasingly destructive in her tiny kitchen, her movements narrated by a terrifyingly sweet and childish voice that hums, gulps, and intones nonsense first. You never get out of that kitchen, but in Borden's film, you watch the destruction from afar. Born in Flames can take you down a bunch of interesting what-happened-to-them-rabbit-holes if you care to follow. Borden herself made several more films and did some television work, but publicly chafed against the studio's intrusions into her work. 
The title song for the film was written by Mayo Thompson, a man, by the way, a member of the band The Red Crayola, which itself was allied with the British-American performance art collective Art and Language. Radio Ragazza DJ Isabel is played by Adele Bertay, a filmmaker, singer, and songwriter who worked with musicians such as Peter Lofner, Brian Eno, Deborah Harry, and many others, and who helped found possibly the first openly gay female rock and roll band, The Bloods. Those feminist newspaper editors? One is played by Catherine Bigelow, who went on to have a very different Hollywood career than her early feminist roots might have predicted. And finally, there's Jean Satterfield, who plays Adelaide Norris, the woman at the center of the film who you wish you could spend more time with. She surfaces in a 2018 NPR StoryCorps interview that takes place in a Boston homeless shelter, where Satterfield and a friend spoke to StoryCorps after they had lost their homes. Deja vu, indeed. Thank you, Britta. And now this. This is Jeff Godsell, a contributor to Film at 11 on Friday mornings here on Kebu. Appreciating the arts and exploring other cultures is a vital part of a healthy society. The free exchange of ideas through artistic expression can be how we communicate, how we express our humanity, how we really connect with each other. Now, as obvious as this truth is, it does not always find favor with political establishments. So now, more than ever, support for the arts must come from each and every one of us. At a time when truth itself is under attack, valuable resources like the programming here on KBU need your help to continue the free flow of ideas and expression. Even in good times, the arts struggle to stay funded. But now, with the challenges facing all of us every day, it is so important that the voices of compassion and open expression continue to be heard. Won't you join me in supporting this station with a contribution of any amount at kboo.fm slash give. Or if you prefer, donations can be sent to kboo.fm 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon 97214. Your donation will help ensure that the love of the arts and cultural diversity will continue to enrich our community. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. You know, there is a certain kind of filmmaker who shies away from making the meanings of their movies clear. Kubrick would return to some of his films after they were released and snip out clarifying moments, significantly in 2001 and The Shining. William Friedkin used to insert moments in his films, notably at the end of French Connection and Cruising and in parts of The Exorcist, that undermined the viewer's notion of whether or not the mystery has been solved or what it really means. To that list, we can add Austrian director Michael Haneke, whose various films, Funny Games, The Piano Teacher, White Ribbon, Traffic and Unexplained Mysteries, he himself has set up. In Benny's video, we never learn why a certain violent act was committed. In White Ribbon, a clue to the actions of the small German village's children is supposedly revealed and a shot so dim you can't see what is actually happening. Now in the latest book in the British Film Institute's Film Classics series, Cachet, also known as Hidden, the subject of the film's long last one-take sequence 
becomes a central subject of discussion. It has puzzled many people. Roger Ebert once wrote a long column on just that part of the movie, with speculation in the talkbacks longer than the column. This can be found very easily if you Google Roger Ebert and hidden or cachet and the ending. Writers and advocates take the side of the director usually, weaving themselves into pretzels, trying to make sense of the deliberate obscurity. Theories range from such that we should not really care who did what, that's beside the point, or that the tapes are made by this or that person, or even by a figure known as Henneke himself. Or, as someone once said to me, that the whole film was a dream. That's a bankrupt conclusion, and I will offer my solution to the mystery towards the end. The book is written by Catherine Wheatley, a professor at King's College, who has studies of Haneke under her belt, and she takes this perpetual puzzle head on. As she writes, my belief is that the privileging of one theme, one reading, one pattern over another, the closing down of the multiplicity of meanings that Cachet contains, and the consigning of a fixed meaning to the film, entails a loss of richness. For Wheatley, Cachet is Haneke's masterpiece of control, each shot tightly engineered. Watching it, one has the sense that nothing has been left to chance. A feeling that sits at odds with its quality of indeterminacy. That's on page 15. And by Jones, the book proves it. It's very exciting to read. After a new foreword discussing the increased relevance, but also somehow quaintness of the film's assertions, Ms. Wheatley explores four topics related to the film. The first section is on the film as a thriller. Is it a whodunit? If it is, why don't we really learn who done it? And yet shows how Haneke employs the techniques of suspense quite efficiently. The second part investigates bourgeois guilt, the family's responsibility for its legacy and being haunted by its past. Um, I was almost thinking this was the weakest part of the book, but was, because after all, it hasn't Claude Chabrol explored the same thing in probably 40 or 50 films, but it's probably the best section of the book because she really helps you focus on uh, Georges, the, the man of the house, played by Daniel Autoy, who is shown to be subtly created as the center of the film around which the movie circulates, casting to the side his wife, played by 